Somebody lost a hand. All the boys are going to the jungle gym. Yeah, rule with an iron fist, Nate. Just like that, there goes half the congregation. That's a very happy thing. Um, pray with me this morning as we get ready. Like this morning's sermon just feels so different as we come on this holiday of Pentecost Sunday as we as we get ready to uh, talk about really maybe the, the the forgotten piece of the Godhead, the Trinity, the idea of the Holy Spirit. So much time is spent on Christ where it should be, and the Heavenly Father, and those things should be done. But sometimes it feels like the Holy Spirit is the one that we maybe cannot explain, um, or maybe there's the most mystery around. And the, the piece of that that you and I need to be um, really aware of is that our access comes through the Holy Spirit. So the less we know about Him, the less you and I are comprehending our own spiritual life, because He is the seal that has wrapped us up until the day of redemption. That's Ephesians. When Jesus tells the disciples that it's good for the disciples that he go away so that he can send the helper, so that God the Father, he will ask and God the Father will send the helper. I mean, can you imagine? I just want to put you in this frame of mind before we get into Pentecost Sunday. Can you imagine standing beside Jesus Christ who you've watched feed the 5,000, who you've watched heal the lame, who you have watched... Uh, turn water into wine who you have watched thwart all these efforts to trip him up like you are standing beside God and you believe that with all of your heart and then Jesus looks at you one day in his teaching and says it is good that I go away now nobody sitting here this morning and nobody then was able to comprehend exactly what Christ was saying can you imagine being in a better position than standing right beside or right behind Jesus as he does these miracles? And yet Jesus looks to the disciples and he says, there's a better position for you to be in. And it's not beside me. It's with the Holy Spirit within you. That comment has always fascinated me. Because you and I know what it's like to be beside or behind good leadership. You don't ever want to lose that person. I think about the idea of a military situation where it's in the battle of your life. 
and the guy in front of you, uh, uh, the girl making a call, they are strong and elegant and smart and ferocious, and you just think, if I am close to them, I am okay. Now take that and make that version with the disciples. And there is Jesus Christ in the flesh. And he looks at them, teaching them things they cannot understand. And he says, but it's good for me to go away, that the helper may come. And that helper that we talk about today is the one that every Christian has access to. You are the temple of God. And that is an amazing truth that I think a lot of days we just get up and we do not comprehend. So this morning, I want to frame it first. We're going to pray and then we're going to get into the sermon. Lord, we love you. Uh, we thank you for the opportunity to be here today. We thank you for those that you have called into fellowship with you. Those that you have saved, God. Those that this story uh, touches. That we actually sit here this morning and the God of the universe has taken up residence in us. And he has done that so that we are assured of what's to come. He has done that to give us power. He has done that to uh, make us an example for all the world. And as we'll see this morning, he's also done that so that aspects of the law, we can actually live. And the timing of all of this is not by accident. It matches the Old Testament, comes into the New Testament, and Christ fulfills all of the Old Testament. And then he sends the Holy Spirit that we may be able to do it too. That those changes that were outward in my actions and what I did and what I said can now be made inward. Why? Because there is someone in there struggling with my flesh. And it is the Holy Spirit of God. And it has come to make me like Jesus. Help us to understand him more this morning. Holy Spirit, illuminate who you are and what you are doing in our lives right now. Illuminate the Word of God so that it touches deeper than it ever has before. Give us a hunger for your Word like we've never had before. A hunger for prayer like we've never had before. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you've come. We thank you that you'll never leave us. That we are always in you, in Christ. And we are as secure right now as we will ever be. We thank you that you love us and that you're wooing us and drawing us into a closer fellowship. We thank you for conviction when you bring it about. Help us to hear your voice and to follow your commands. It's in the name and for the glory of King Jesus that we get to pray these things. Amen. Pentecost. This morning's part, and this is going to finish up tonight, this morning's part will be in Acts all day. Tonight at 6.30, we're going to do some music. At about 5.45, I'm going to be here for some food so we didn't cram uh, too much on you to get you back here on Sunday evening. I know we're a little bit out of that uh, habit. So tonight at 5.45, I'll be here uh, with some food. You come, we'll hang out for 45 minutes at 6.30. We're going to do a night of just music and worship and praise. And then I'm going to finish this sermon uh, tonight. And the other two P's will be uh, uh, a plan, a purpose, a passion. Purpose and passion. Acts chapter 4 is where we'll be tonight. This morning we're talking about Pentecost, right? Where have we been? Well, in the last couple months, we've been talking these things over and over. And I am doing this on purpose. I want you to be able to figure out why you actually believe in a resurrected Jesus. So what are the proofs that we have? We've talked about them now for two months. The empty tomb. The eyewitnesses. All the prophecies that Jesus fulfills. 
and the idea that there's a massive change in the disciples. That tonight will be the main point because we've seen it in spurts. Tonight, I will bring the rest of the story out for you so that you can see actually how much of a change there was to the disciples. Because those that run in it are now going to be doing different things. That one got me too. Those, they're going to be doing different things now that just a couple months prior to would have made no sense. Peter runs and hides. They all run and scared. And now by the time you get to Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 4, the disciples are doing things. They are uh, absolutely changing the world. So what are these proofs? The empty tomb, the eyewitnesses, all the prophecies that Jesus fulfills. And there's a massive change in the disciples. We've talked about a couple principles, right? That tender-hearted Christians know God. They will see Him. They will experience Him. Do not lose a tender heart. A tender heart is what the Holy Spirit uses to speak to you. If you harden it, if you stiffen it, you will lose pieces of the relationship with God that should be there because your heart is not tender. Do not harden your heart, no matter how many times you get hurt. No matter how much struggle there is in your life, keep your heart tender so that God can speak to you and that God can use you. You will find Jesus in the Old Testament. Not only will you find him, but you'll find him there first. And to experience a resurrected Jesus is to be changed. It's to be changed. And two weeks ago, I preached to you uh, as we were talking about the story of Peter. And the story of Peter, in, in, in such contrast to the story of Judas, Peter's brokenhearted, he is repentant, and we watched Jesus restore him. Peter has, has written checks that he can't cash, and because of that he says, Jesus, I'll never leave you. These bunch of losers might, but I'm going to be there until the end. And what happens is, Peter gets called on that, and what does he do? He denies Jesus three times. Not to a soldier, not to Caesar, not to some Pharisee. He denies Jesus three times to a servant girl that is nameless. He was totally out of the picture. And what we talked about uh, during that sermon was this idea that there is redemption, there is forgiveness, and there is reconciliation with God. That your sins really can be washed away. That... Christ not only forgives Peter and loves on him and takes care of him, but in Acts chapter 2, in Acts chapter 4, Jesus actually uses Peter to, to be one of the foundational pieces to start the church. And so not only can God take your messiness and forgive you, He can take that and use you. The world cannot understand that kind of redemption, forgiveness, and reconciliation. Even in our own lives, we have such a hard time uh, with that idea. We think if somebody has failed us, they should have to pay for it for the rest of their lives, that they should carry that guilt, that they should carry that pain. And God doesn't operate that way. The cross of Jesus was big enough not only to cover what you've done, but to allow God to forget it. It's gone. What a wonderful truth. Principles we talked about that week are the recognition of Christ. The Christian is going to recognize Christ. They are going to worship Christ. And they are going to get work done. Remember, that's the picture in the boat. John sees Jesus on the shore. John recognizes him. Peter is just 
forward with the idea of seeing him again and being close to him. So what's he do? He jumps in the lake and swims to be his savior. He worships him. And then the other guys, what are they doing? Well, they're finishing catching the fish. And Jesus doesn't look at any of them and say, you've done the wrong thing. He looks at all of them and he blesses all of that. Your life and your work and your effort. Moments of recognition of Jesus and being close to Him. Moments of worship of Him. And moments of just mundane work are all important to Him. And He blesses all of those. The requirements that you and I have to work and to obey are not for Jesus' fulfillment. His work and His commands bless others and they bless ourselves. You and I don't work to give God something He doesn't have. You and I work and obey because God gives us things that we were never... We couldn't dream up on our own. We couldn't grab or get a hold of on our own. When you and I obey Scripture, when we obey Christ, He uses us to love and care for other people and to build His kingdom. But we are not giving Him anything He doesn't have. He is self-sufficient. That is part of the definition of God. When He's asked what His name is, I am is the idea. And because there's nothing lacking. I am self-sufficient. I am eternal. I am the one that provides. So what do you and I get to do? We get to be a part of that work. And God blesses us and He blesses other people through it. We talked about the idea that God's blessings won't tear your nets. They won't tear your nets. So what happens with that huge load of fish is they go to pull it in. The nets don't break. And that's the amazing part. Remember as we read through the story, they couldn't believe. Listen, that's how God blesses you and I. The world wants to promise you things that will tear your nets. They will leave holes in your life. They mimic what God's blessings are, but they do so in a way that they are corrupted. God's blessings don't tear your nets. The load that He gives you, the blessings that He gives you, whether they be financial or, or a place at work or whatever it is, when the Lord's hand is in it, it doesn't tear your nets. It doesn't ruin your family. It doesn't ruin your marriage. It doesn't ruin your life. It doesn't uh, have you make bad decisions that come back later and curse you. God's blessings, the He is on, will not tear your nets. Your life will be blessed. And as you're reeling in that blessing in whatever form that it is, your life is better for it, not worse. And we talked finally about the idea of real repentance last week. That's what we see in Peter's interaction. It's in, If you're going to repent for real, it's between you and God. Psalm 53 is a picture of that after David has failed so grievously. It is a grievous reminder. Remember, Jesus looks at Peter and calls him Simon. When you see that in Bible passages, when you see that in the gospel, Peter referred to Simon. It usually means something's wrong. He's reverted back to his old self. What does Peter do in that passage? He owns it all. You see, when there's real repentance, there's humble recognition of our failures. We're not trying to take half blame. I mean, you and I might even think, listen, I'll take 95% of the blame. Right? Like, this was mostly on me, but it was a little on you. That's not repentance. David in Psalm 53 says, against you and you alone, I have sinned, God. He is grieving over that, you know, the, the Uriah in that passage doesn't come up. Bathsheba in that passage doesn't come up. David's sin was against God. And because his sin was against God, that left him totally accountable. Why? Because God didn't deserve 5% of the blame, and he never will. You and I need to take that concept and use it in real life. Because when you and I sin, no matter what that person did to us, if we sin in return, that is all on us. It is not on them. And you will never be released from that prison until you can apologize for what you did, even in response to something evil. 
And you say, well, that's not fair. It's righteous. It's what Jesus did. It's what you and I are called to do. And it lays the foundation for future blessings. So there's humble recognition of our failures and repentance. And you and I are brought back into the idea that the only calling of Scripture is to follow Christ. To follow Him. And that's what we see in that passage. So all of that passage works us into what it means to run into a resurrected Jesus. And today you and I will go into what comes next. What comes next? And actually it's not a what. It's a who. It's a who. It's not a what. Jesus makes a promise in John 14. If you love me, you will keep my commands. And I will ask the Father and he will send you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. But the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you and remind you of everything I have told you. That is John 16, or that's John 14, 15 to 16, and verse 26. John 16, 6 says this, again, Jesus teaching. Yet because I have spoken these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I am telling you the truth. It is for your benefit that I go away, because if I do not go away, the counselor will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Verse 9, about sin, because they do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father, and you will no longer see me. And about judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. He's making a promise. I love the passage in John 14 because a lot of times uh, when you get into a, a discussion of theology, you and I need to understand a little bit about this passage. Another in that passage is another of the same kind. Alos, A-L-L-O-S. Another of a different kind is heteros. So when Jesus is speaking to the disciples, he tells them, We're gonna, I'm going to send a counselor. The Father's going to send a counselor of the same kind as who? Who is he talking about? Himself. So we get a real strong piece that the Holy Spirit is who in this? God. Instead of Jesus saying there's another helper of a different kind and we're going to send him to you, he doesn't say that. He says there's another helper of the same kind. And again, I ask you, can you imagine the void? If God is standing there in flesh with you and he leaves, who is going to replace that other than God? So if Jesus looks at them and says, it's better that I go, not if you send us something that is less than you. How could it be better? You're sending us second best, Lord. How could it be better? So that's not the case. The case in this passage is another of the same kind. Jesus is promising that God will come in the form of who? The Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1 verse 7 and 8 says this is not for you to know the times or periods the Father has set, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Look at Acts chapter 1 with me for a couple minutes. start in one because we have to because I want you to, I want you to see something if we as a church or you as an individual if we're going to experience all that that God wants to do in our life if we're going to experience that relationship without hindrance do you know where it starts it starts with obedience as a Christian it starts with obedience as the unsaved it would start with repentance 
But if you and I want to experience what the Lord has to offer, what He wants to do in our hearts and in our minds, it starts with obedience. Look at Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. There's a command and a promise. And while staying with them, He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which He said, You heard from Me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Jesus looks at them and he tells them, just wait a couple days. And I wonder about the patience. The patience of the disciples. I wonder about our patience sometimes too. We are just ready to get to work. And some, the zeal of, of God is, is so strong. And so They're just ready to work. Well, there's a time to wait to be prepared. There's a time to wait. To spend time and stopping and waiting on the Lord and, and praying and fasting and these other things other than just the work that is required to be done. If they leave too soon, they will do it in their own power. And whatever they have experienced and all that the disciples have seen in the last couple days will run dry. It will run out. Why? Because it will be done in their own power. The first piece of this idea just to obey is to be patient and wait for the Lord. Think how powerful that is in our day of work, 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 work. Get up, get going, get moving. Even in the church, we kind of corrupt these things at times. You know, and I grieve for our church. I grieve for my own heart because I'm not leading well in this way. But our church should be, like Jesus would call it, a house of prayer. And we need to be slowing down and stopping and praying together as a group, praying individually. And that needs to be our driving force that in moments of indecision or when there's things that are coming our way that are going to be hard to navigate, we need to be a people of prayer, not just before service and not just before we eat. We need to figure out how to do that as a people, as a body. And it needs to take preeminence in what we do as a church. We do so many things so well here. Fellowship, the love, the time together are by far the greatest I've ever experienced. And, and what tells me that it's not just me is that when we have guests here, you all treat them the same way. And every time they leave, the compliment is always the same. So I know we do those things well, but we're going to enter a day when just being nice and friendly and having fun and the fellowship we have is not going to be enough. Dark days are coming. We need to be a people of prayer. It needs to be not second nature, but first nature. To hold someone's hand and pray with them. When you hear a prayer request, to pray for it right then. And we get so caught up on what it sounds like or what we say or what we don't say. It doesn't matter. The God of the universe can take your tears and make them words. That's what Scripture says. So we need to be less worried about what we say. And more worried about how much time we spend saying it to the one that's worthy. Because there are days coming that they're not going to be removed. We're not going to be able to navigate them without prayer and fasting. That's what Jesus tells the disciples. And I think he's just warning us the same. We need to learn together to pray as if our lives depend on it. Because they do. To commune with the God of the universe and love him. This obedience, this time uh, together, this waiting is what Jesus requires for the Holy Spirit to fall. He just looks at him and says, go and wait couple days. If they jump the gun, they're going to be doing it on their own. Look at verse 6. 
So when they came together and they asked him, Lord, will you at this point restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as, uh, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. Verse 12. Then they arrived and returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem. A Sabbath day journey away. What did they do? They went back to Jerusalem. They did what they were told. Their response was to obey. This is preparation of the Holy Spirit's work. If you and I know Him, the only interaction we have with Him if we refuse to obey His commands is conviction. And if that conviction is not heeded, it turns into a grieving of the Holy Spirit and then it turns into a quenching of the Holy Spirit. Like you and I can, can, can shut the mouth of God in our hearts by grieving Him and by quenching Him. There is repentance that must come for the Christian. Obedience to the Word. If we're hanging on to things that are not godly, we need to let them go. We need to tell God that we're sorry, that we believe some lie, that we did this or we shouldn't have done that, that we're treating this person poorly, that we're, that we're not interacting the way we should with people that don't know Him. We're not loving the world properly. We need to be ready and willing to apologize and repent. And when there's time to do right things, we need to do them and obey. That is what the Holy Spirit uh, touches in our hearts. That is the draw that allows you and I to be a part of that mission. Look at verse 13 and 14 as we go down a little bit. can't find it on my little screen here. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot and Judas uh, the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. And his brothers. Just real quick and a, a little aside here and part of one of the apologetics to prove for a resurrected Jesus. What did Jesus' brothers think about him before the resurrection? They thought he was crazy. They thought he was crazy. Actually, they, they, if you read the Gospels, they're goading him into doing things that are going to get him in trouble. Right? There's a feast coming up and Jesus makes a proclamation and his brothers are goading him to go to Jerusalem after the disciples have already said, if you go, we're going to be in trouble. And then his brothers are looking at him and saying, man, listen, if you're really the Christ, just go on up there and do what you need to do. They're goading him. They thought he was crazy. Details in Scripture matter. What is that detail telling you and I? They have run into a resurrected Jesus. And now all of their misconceptions, all of their doubts. I mean, honestly, can you imagine being Jesus' younger brother? Like how high can the bar actually be set? Right? A ton of animosity there. This guy thinks he's special. I mean, he's cool. I guess a little bit. Whatever. Mom and dad seem to love him. Think something special about him. Uh, kind of pious and a jerk. Right? Always right. Can you imagine just living in that shadow? 
So they're goading and pushing. They don't believe the story. They don't believe he's the Messiah. They watch him do special things, but not interested until what? Until he shows up from the dead. Even younger brothers repent. Right? Even a younger brother can say, man, you know, I'm sorry. I'd like to apologize. That passage is telling you now there's been a shift. There's been a shift in the family. That's why Mary and the brothers of Jesus are mentioned. They are now a part of the flock. When before they were agitators and instigators. Cynics. Critics. They were all continually united in prayer. Preparation for the Holy Spirit. Is obedience. And the second piece is prayer. To pray to the God of the universe was to open up communication with the one that has all the character and all the resources and all the hope and all the joy that you and I could ever need. Not to pray is a sign of pride and self-sufficiency. What is prayer in essence? It is two things. It is speaking to God about things you need or things that your friends need. It is supplication in that form or it is what? It is thanksgiving. And both of those things push against my pride. They push against my self-sufficiency. I don't have to pray when I have what I need. And I don't have to pray if I think I've earned it. And you and I can see why we have learned this pattern of, of behavior that it's just something we do for you know three seconds before a meal or something we do on Sundays. Why? Because God help us. We are self-sufficient. The fridge is running. The car drives. The, the roof on the house isn't leaking. And, and the job looks like it's going to be there for the next 50 years. And my 401k looks good. I mean, I'm good to go. What do I need to pray for? And we are so broke. All we have is stuff. And these people have met Christ. They've seen the resurrected Lord. What do they find themselves doing? They find themselves praying. Why? Because Jesus emphasized that in his teaching. The whole time of his ministry, what is he teaching about? Well, he makes some really magnificent claims about prayer. The temple would be called a house of prayer. You've made it a den of robbers is what Jesus would say. What would he say about the demons that wouldn't leave? The problems that just wouldn't go away? And Jesus would look at the disciples and say, those only go by prayer and fasting. Are you dealing with something in your own heart that you just can't see? To get a handle on. Are you dealing with some sin that constantly besets you? Do you have that place in your life that you just can't get victory over? It comes from prayer and fasting. Beating those habits. Being intimate with the God of the universe. To the point where the belly grumbling because you're fasting is a reminder that you are not self-sufficient. It's a reminder that there are drives in you that are like the air you breathe, the water you drink, and the food you need to have. There are drives within you that just make you do things without even noticing it. Our relationship with God should be that way too. It should be almost a driving force like that. The need to eat, the need to breathe, water to drink. When's the last time you were hungry? When's the last time you were thirsty? When's the last time as a Christian... Those things were about your spiritual life and not your physical life. Jesus would say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. 
Jesus would look at them and say, these things come by prayer and fasting. These mountains move. These demons move. These problems go away by prayer and fasting. And he would look at them and say, when you pray, not if, when you pray, pray like this. And he would give them the example of the Lord's Prayer. Thanksgiving, the holiness of God, the goodness of God, being forgiven of our debts as we forgive those that have sinned against us. Our daily needs are in there. It's all there in this format. And Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this. We know that Jesus' life, he was a man of prayer. The Bible says he would go on his own. So many times he would get out, he would get away from the crowd, the disciples, and he would just commune with his father. And what would he be doing? He would be going over scripture and praying and just enjoying time. Enjoying time. It wasn't a work or a drudgery. It was part of his life. And so the disciples, as they are waiting, what do they do? They revert back to this habit. Why? I'm going to give you two reasons. Why? Number one. Because Jesus spoke about it constantly. It was important to him. So they made it important to them. And here's the second one. And I think this is where we get hung up. The disciples were praying because they knew they were talking to a living Lord that was there with them. I've tried to come up with some kind of example that would make sense, but I just... I almost can't do it, so I'm just going to try. If, if the person in the room next to you, and I want to take you back to the idea of a child. I take you back to the idea of a child with a good father. And the child has needs. And the father has what? Answers. How many times does the door get open and the child stick their head in there and ask for something? I'm talking like four or five, right? Right? Open the cabinet. Get me a drink. That concept needs to be a part of our prayer life, even at 40, where I can get in my own cabinets. Right? And I can eat anything I want, especially if nobody else is looking. I don't have to ask for permission anymore. But that idea of that prayer life needs to be something like that. A childlike faith with a father that is present and loving and able. And constantly throughout the day, opening that door, and I am bending his ear. And you know the difference between me and him? As a father goes, he never gets annoyed. As a matter of fact, he loves it. Right, you just sit down and somebody else needs something. You sit back down and somebody else needs something. You sit back down and the toilet ain't flushing. I mean, like, you know, you know what I'm saying. It's just constant. Boom, 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 boom. Baby crying. Fork in the light socket. Right? Like just infinite. God's not like that because he's not finite. He's infinite. So his mind and his attention are on you. And his mind and his attention are on me. And I am never bugging him. And you are never bugging him. Actually, he delights in it. Our prayers are like the incense of heaven. They are a fragrance of heaven. You and I need to take that uh, concept. And we need to build it into our life. Because it's not there naturally. How does that start? And you tell me. 15 minutes where you throw your phone out in the driveway long enough to have 15 minutes of quiet. Something's not dinging. Something's not buzzing. Can you sit there and focus on something that is big enough to focus on for 15 minutes? Can you open your Bible and read it for 15 minutes and let the God of the universe commune with you and talk to you not only through His Word but through the Holy Spirit that is in you? We need to develop these habits. They are not there instinctively. 
especially in our culture. So we get to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is Pentecost. It was already a holiday for them then. This is not a new holiday. It is one they were already celebrating. We're going to see that in the passage. But I want to lay it out for you so that you see what happens. You have Passover, which is Good Friday. It's what we call Good Friday. The Sabbath after, or the, or the Sunday after the next Sabbath, is the Feast of First Fruits. The Feast of First Fruits. Where the Jews would come in and they would lay down the first fruits of their harvest. Hoping for the rest. Now what do we celebrate on that Sunday? Easter. Easter. Resurrection Sunday. So who is Jesus as he comes out of the grave? The first fruit. Seven weeks later, day 50 is Pentecost. A day that the Jews uh, would, would remember the day that Moses brought them the law, the Torah. And that as soon as they had signed on to that idea, as soon as they agreed to that idea, they were in covenant with God. What do you and I celebrate? We celebrate the one that has sealed us up and put us in covenant with God. The Jews got the law written out. You and I get it written on our heart. They got something they could never live up to. You and I get the one that actually makes it livable. We're not going to be sinless. Don't get me wrong. But there are elements of the law on good days that you and I can fulfill now as God had intended. Why? Because of who that is in us. This is the delivery day for that beautiful completion of what God had written out in the Old Testament. That they had seen from a distance and that God was now going to do. When the day of Pentecost arrived, chapter 2, verse 1, they were all together in one place. They are still together. They are still in that place and they are still obeying. So what happens? It's a time of thankfulness, harvest, and celebration. A time of commitment to the Torah. Torah was given and when accepted, the Jews became God's people. They were all together in one place, in one accord, with one spirit. They had believed and they had obeyed the words of Jesus. Together they had stayed and waited for His promise. Verse 2, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and were resting on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Wind and tongues of fire that are visible to be seen. And a language, this superpower language. These are signs of God's presence. God has fallen. The promise has been kept. The obedience has been rewarded. Even if they didn't understand it. You don't understand God's timing. Why do we need to wait, Jesus? Some, some things are just because He said so. Deal with it. Every parent in here has said that. And if you're not a parent yet, when you become one, you will say that. Right? God says it too. I don't know why he had to wait a couple days other than the feast is coming and the Lord has a timetable. But other than that, the disciples may not have put that together. Just go and wait a couple days. Because God said so. Look at verse 5. Now they're dwelling in Jerusalem, the Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Uh, Parthians and Medes and Elamites 
and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, uh, Pontus and Asia, uh, Phrygia and Pamphylia, uh, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arab, uh, Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God and all are amazed and perplexed saying to the other one, what does this mean? Verse 13, but others mocked and said they are filled with new wine. This miracle is visible. It is undeniable. Some of you have lived like this, that God has done something. It has been visible. It has been undeniable. Churches have seen God work and the outside world can see something and they know it's going on. But a lot of times they will try to explain it away. They don't have eyes to see and they don't have ears to hear what God is doing. But you and I do. And the Lord is at work. He's at work in your life and he's at work in mine. And sometimes you and I get to see him together do something amazing. That is what's going on right now in Acts chapter 2. Why were the nations there? I just told you. It's a holiday. They were required to come. And so God's timing again checks out. Men and women from all over the world or all over where Jews were scattered all come back to Jerusalem to celebrate. And in the middle of that, they're going to watch God do something unbelievable. The Spirit of God is going to fall and inhabit people. Verse 12, and they're asking themselves, what does it mean? Go back to verse 11. They told you what it meant. In all of these tongues, they were proclaiming God's mighty works and God's salvation. And yet the world standing right there still cannot figure out what it means. Every salvation, every work of God, every time a human says yes to the Lord, it is a miracle and it should be praised that way. As if someone was cured of cancer or had a limb grow back. We should bless the Lord and praise Him for that awesome miracle. What's it mean? They're watching it happen and the people in the city cannot even understand what's going on. If they would have just listened to what was being said. Because God made sure that every language was hearing it. The world's going to sneer and mock when the Lord starts to work. You and I need to expect it. We need to expect it. Look at verse 14. But Peter standing with the eleven lifted up his voice and addressed them. The Holy Spirit, Spirit comes as a promise with a plan. The believer is equipped to live a life they could not live. You and I have been equipped to live a life that we cannot live. Peter stands to preach in 2.14. In 16 and 17, he sees Scripture clearly, maybe for the first time, and its meanings. He starts to proclaim that word. He is assured and bold that others may know too. Why is this sermon being preached? That's verse 30, 36. So that others may know too. And the Holy Spirit, verse 37, gives the power to be useful to the Lord. Gives the power to be useful to the Lord. That is the power that comes about because the Holy Spirit is living within us. And now for the last couple verses before we get ready to wrap up, verses 42 to 47, the Holy Spirit brings about a heaven on earth for believers. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as many had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those that were being saved. On day one, 3,000 people get saved. 
as Peter preaches a sermon. And after that, this is the fruit, a heaven on earth. This is a peace that the world should look at when they see you and I interacting together. Not only here, but at Kroger. Not only here, but at Coonskin. Not only here, but anywhere we go. When they see you and I interacting together, this is what they should see. The world has no counterfeit to this. It has no counterfeit. This church on fire in verses 42 to 47, there is a commitment to the Word of God. And there is a commitment to the people of God. Fellowship, the food, the time together, these are not things that are meaningless. They are of utmost importance. There's a commitment to prayer. And there's the perpetual awe and wonder of knowing God is at work. When is the last time you left here or you had a conversation with someone here, a part of your church, that you were just in awe of what God was doing? We need that back. This recipe, this, this, this. This checkboxes of what it looks like to do that are right here for you and I to follow. We, they were faithful to him. And because they were faithful, they were generous. They were joyful. They were thankful. And they were praise filled. As the praise team comes today, I told you the world has no counterfeit for this. This was the greatest party the world has ever thrown. Everybody likes a good party, right? Like even some of you Christian people don't dance and other things. Y'all like a good party, right? Good food, good time, whatever else. The greatest one to ever be thrown was in the early church. Everybody was joy-filled. Everybody had one heart, one spirit. They were generous with the things that they had. They were loving people well. They were breaking bread together. And all of those things were pictures of heaven to come. You know, whole philosophies have tried to mimic this and they can never do it right. Socialism, communism, the only place those things have ever worked properly is in the new church. Why? Because no man was in control. The Holy Spirit was. And you and I get a little piece of that. Every time we gather together as a body to honor the Lord, you and I get a piece of that, of heaven to come. And the outside world should look in and long for that kind of safety, that kind of comfort, that kind of love. And what happens is you and I get to point them to the one that makes it possible. Because it's not within me and it's not within you. It's the Holy Spirit in us drawing us together and bringing our spirits together and, and loving others well through us. And in that, we get to glorify Christ. Would you stand with me this morning? If you're missing something today, I'm begging you to talk to someone before.